0: The Nets said this is a big game to us. They were, you know, they just weren't mincing any words. Kevin Lockery said we're growing up in the same environment with the Knicks. We need this game. It's important to us. And you can believe it now, the way they a, came back. It's, it's shown. It's been a very vetting performance by both teams. I think I would have to give the edge to the uh, Nets as far as the hustle is concerned because they fought and rallied back, and they're still in this basketball game. All right, now Phil Jackson is coming in for the first time for New York. Howard Porter is checking in for the Nets. Have King, Jackson, Porter, George Johnson, Beard, Monroe, Jackson, McAdoo, and Lonnie Shelton. There goes Jackson. He's a defensive specialist. He's going to put all the pressure in the world he can on Kevin Porter. Jackson has tremendous ball. He's an excellent defense. That's he's a good move. I like this. Right. All right. One second. We're going to get a shot. Williamson's shot. It's good. It's good. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. 43 points falling out of bounds. Williamson got it away. And the Nets have won it. Hell of a game. One. 12 to 110. Let's look at it again, Gus. Man's playing him right here. He throws the ball down. Jackson does... A super job on the defense. Williamson's in a three point area, fades back, falling out of bounds, throws a 40, 30 footer in, hits nothing but the net. They deserve the win. All right, I waited to the last to vote on my MVP. I got it, to Williamson. Williamson. No question. I'm glad we did wait. So the Chevrolet Most Valuable Player Award goes to John Williamson. 43 points in the winning basket here this afternoon. The Chevrolet 1000 scholarship will be awarded to New Mexico State. John Williamson's school. On behalf of John, 112 to 110, quite an afternoon for the New York Knicks. So the New Jersey Nets defeat the New York Knicks, 112 to 110. Stay tuned as the NBA on CBS continues after this word from your local station. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a
1: curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, that's super John Williamson to you, fine sir. How are you, everybody? My name's Tim Anlin. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. I appreciate you finding us, however you've done so, downloading us and streaming or whatever, however you're ingesting uh, this week's proceedings. Uh, Welcome, welcome, and welcome. Uh, a, uh, a a topic that uh, has been uh, long overdue in uh, in good seats still available history for sure uh, yours truly having grown up in the New York New Jersey metropolitan area as you well know uh, from previous episodes and the New Jersey version of the Nets is the topic du jour. Our guest this week Lukasz Munaski. A uh, very difficult uh, name for yours truly to pronounce, but uh, hopefully I've not uh, mangled the uh, Polish pronunciation. Is our guest this week uh, the author of the just released new McFarland book called Turnpike Team: A History of the New Jersey Nets and uh, the Brooklyn Nets? We know today, of course, uh, having a, having a season thus far as we record this uh, in early January two thousand and twenty-three. Uh, one of the top three or four teams by record thus far. And um, perhaps, perhaps this is the year that the Nets franchise uh, breaks through and gets back uh, to the finals and perhaps maybe uh, climbs the summit for the first time uh, in their, uh, uh, their uh, uh, life, in the NBA. We all know the uh, original – Uh, Nets, the New York Nets in 1974 and in the ABA's final season in 1976, won two ABA championships uh, mostly uh, and uh, not mostly, but certainly uh, very uh, solidly off the uh, the back and the fingertips uh, and the airborne uh, greatness of one Dr. Julius Irving, Dr. J. But this is a very interesting franchise, these Brooklyn Nets. Uh, Before they moved to Brooklyn and became the Brooklyn Nets in 2012, uh, they were all over the place. They began life as the New Jersey Americans playing in the Teaneck Armory and other places uh, in the original ABA's uh, formation. Uh, They moved to uh, uh, Long Island and uh, Comac Arena and a couple of other places. And then they finally domiciled themselves in what was then the brand new uh, Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum and uh until they uh, uh left and were one of the successful franchises to merge uh announced in 1976 into the NBA and uh, the first season 1976-77 uh no my mistake the 77 no wait a minute 19, this is hard this is this is why we're doing this episode 76-77 was their first year as the NBA version of the Nets, but they were still the New York Nets. They were still playing in the uh, Nassau Coliseum, and they moved firmly to New Jersey for sure uh, for the 77-78 season. Uh, and they were on their way to eventually the Brendan Byrne slash Meadowlands Arena, uh, but not for uh, four years prior, uh, their first four years in New Jersey, playing in the RAC, the Rutgers Athletic. Center. It is uh, now branded and, and rehabbed and refurbished and stuff. But for those four magical years, they were the first real years of the New Jersey Nets NBA version of themselves. And that clip uh, that you uh, heard there at the, uh, at the outset of today's proceedings uh, gives you a bit of a taste. Um, we searched very, very hard for a John Sterling and Mike DiTomaso called game. Uh, I guess it was on WMCA. Then it was on WNV, uh, WVNJ, and and uh, the, he, uh, the, the the John Sterling, our guest uh, from episode number uh, one hundred, was uh, the longtime voice of the. Uh, peripatetic uh, nets uh, in their Long Island years and for a bunch of years in New Jersey, the gutty gritty New Jersey nets, he would call them. And he would go off and he, th- this game apparently he uh, just went nuts, as uh, did Gary Bender and Gus Johnson on the CBS call of the game. This is in uh, let's see, February 12th, uh, 1978, on, uh, on CBS. Uh, but the radio version, I can assure you, was a whole lot more animated than uh, Messrs. Bender, and Johnson were calling this game. You have to remember that John uh, John Sterling would call these games, and he wouldn't even call them by their players' names. He would just say Bernard Sky, B.B. King, he would call uh, Jan Van Bredikoff, VBK, uh, Super John Williamson. Uh, they, would, they would have all these great uh, nicknames and stuff, and um, it was an exciting uh, team to listen to if you couldn't even see them. Uh, these gutty-gritty New Jersey Nets. Uh, but that's where that clip was from, and that was from their first season uh, as the New Jersey Nets of the NBA and their second season as an NBA team after having been in the ABA. Hopefully you can follow all that. But uh, that was a a, a, a rare uh, victory, and, a, and importantly, against the New York Knicks, who, as we'll hear in this conversation with Lucas, Lukas uh, Lukash coming up, were uh, an important background of the New Jersey Nets story because uh, the Knicks were, um, you know, uh, very protective of their territorial rights. And uh, as the ABA merged with the NBA, um, uh, the Knicks were not, let's say, the most accommodating neighbor, shall we say. But the rivalry uh, did sort of, sort of percolate for sure. Uh, I, I It's hard to say now what you call the Brooklyn... Uh, and uh Nets and the New York Knicks uh, uh, sort of rivalry now, but it was pretty it was pretty edgy the the New Jersey Nets version versus the Knicks uh, and some some wild games for sure, and that was definitely uh one of them. um but the whole history of the Nets franchise is fascinating. and we're gonna focus on the New Jersey version of that, the incarnation uh, of the Uh, the New Jersey version, and of course, uh, not just the Rutgers Athletic Center, but the Meadowlands Arena or Brendan Byrne Arena. Uh, There were a couple of years there near the end before they moved to Brooklyn where they played in the Prudential Center in Newark uh, until uh, finally moving in 2012 to the uh, Barclays Center. Um, Lots of great stories. If you remember names like uh, not only Dr. J, but Buck Williams and Sam Bowie and Derek Coleman, Stefan Marbury, uh, Vince Carter, Jason Kidd, all of that and more – uh, as well as the aforementioned uh, Super John Williamson, and uh, just a just a whole litany of of players that uh, uh, came and 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 went. The New Jersey Nets, a, a fascinating story, never sort of a, a great team, uh, save for two uh, wonderfully uh, uh, memorable years, uh, where defining uh, or defying all odds. Uh, the New Jersey Nets were in the finals of the NBA Finals from two, uh, for the uh, twenty twenty excuse me two thousand one two thousand two season and the following two thousand two two thousand three season. They could never sort of um, uh, cl- you know finish uh, climb the uh, if, uh, the summit, um, but those are the last two finals appearances. And uh, we get into a whole bunch of stuff. It's also a little bit of, a lot about New Jersey. Uh, not quite New York, not quite Philadelphia, in the middle, in between, not quite either of those things. Uh, the malaise of of being from and in New Jersey. Um, uh, you know, the um, uh, the the sort of second uh, fiddle, shall we say, to, or even in the case of the NHL third fiddle when you have three franchises in the New York metropolitan area, all of these things, we kind of get into, um, you know the also ran status of of being uh, a New Jersey franchise and the Nets in particular, and uh, why perhaps uh, Lukash and uh, myself identified so um, so tightly with uh, the New Jersey version of the Nets. Our part, uh, uh, the part of our conversation this week uh, devoted to uh, th- this conversation devoted to that this week. Uh, it's been a day. You can hear my uh, the head cold that I have in my head uh, as we talk about the New Jersey Nets. Uh, Lukash uh, Munyaski coming up. Uh, in just a moment's time, let's. Um, we're going to dispense again with the uh, promotion just to get right to the conversation. Uh, and uh, again, you can get this book. Again, it's called Turnpike Team A History of the New Jersey Nets, 1977 to 2012. Uh, it is published by McFarland and it is available now wherever you find good books. And uh, of course, we uh, love you to uh, purchase this book through our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode. Uh, which is numbered 289. my goodness 289 is the episode. you'll see it on the website and you'll find a convenient link to the book there. And by doing so you'll get uh, you'll give us a few shekels of referral love. We appreciate that uh, courtesy of our friends at Amazon. Of course you'll get it as fast as humanly possible either through the Kindle or paperback versions of said. Again, it's called Turnpike Team history of the New Jersey Nets. And uh, if you go to our website at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, search up 289, the episode number, and click through that link. Thank you very much, and uh, you will enjoy the book immensely as uh, I did for sure. And hopefully you will immensely enjoy this conversation too. Here we go uh, with um, Lukasz uh, Munozki, uh and myself talking about the gutty-gritty New Jersey Nets from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the aughts and even a little bit in the 2010s before they became Brooklyn. Please enjoy this conversation as always. Enjoy. Our little journey for this silly little show has been (laughs) this weird, perverse, frankly fascination uh, with teams and leagues and situations in professional sports that have come and gone. And I, I know uh, you've done quite a bit of of work. I've seen your work and and highlighted elsewhere in in terms of other uh, sports uh, 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 stories and writings and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the New Jersey Nets to me is a really interesting example of that because we know them now today, of course, as the Brooklyn Nets. But they had history before uh, they were known as the Jersey the New Jersey Nets, and they obviously currently have a a future we still hope and think and believe uh, as the now Brooklyn Nets. But it's interesting that you sort of focused on this sort of a period of time in between those two things. I guess the question to start with is
2: why? Well, to be honest, I find it always uh, interesting to root for the underdog. And uh, well, the state of New Jersey as a whole is seen as a somewhat of an underdog as it's placed between two much larger states. So you have Pennsylvania and you have New York. So they always live in like the shadow of the two and they're like seen as as a land in between. And the New Jersey Nets, so the New Jersey incarnation of the Nets was always a team somewhere stuck in between. And there was a recurring motive uh, when I looked at the New Jersey Nets is that they were always like in a state of, uh, well, how should I call it? Even when they were good, he knew that something bad would happen. And, and it, it was the same whether we're talking about like landing the first pick in the draft or being in the NBA finals, you somewhat always knew that something bad is going to happen. And I found that really fascinating that throughout their history, this was like this recurring pattern that they could never put it all together. So that's what I found that interesting. Plus I was also a fan of the New Jersey Nets myself because I like Jason Kidd a lot he was one of my favorite players because i'm a short white guy so so i mean he's not short by nba standards he's like in the middle i think he's six four but i could like relate to that a pass first guard who always plays hard who isn't a particularly good scorer but he sort of makes a difference on the court so i always wanted to emulate that even though i failed miserably That's that's why I became a rider rather than a basketball player.
1: Well, all right. So let me let me reiterate the word why, but put it in in context, because uh, for the benefit of our audience, your accent Mm -hmm. and where you're located now from where we're having this conversation um, seems to indicate that perhaps you may not have grown up. And understood truly mm-hmm. what it means to be a New Jerseyan like I have been. Uh, perhaps okay. you have some experience with New Jersey, or maybe you're just doing this from afar. Again, the question why this particular story then for you?
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Uh... Don't, don't get me wrong. All, I,
1: I love it because I'm from New Jersey, and I, I, I everything you just said made me smile and wince at the same time. How you know that though is pretty interesting to me because if you didn't okay. live there, I'm really curious
2: as to how you figured it yeah, so, out. first of all, I have an accent. I always thought that I had this perfect American accent, so I'm kind of disappointed. No, yeah. you're pretty well off. I don't totally, worry about it. I totally know. I, I know. I know. My accent is just awful, and there's like no way working around it. So, why? Well, that's a really good question, because, um, to be honest, uh, I don't really know. It's just that there are some stories, and there are some things that you, like, feel close to, and I found this story of the New Jersey Nets somewhat. Well, I found the New Jersey Nets first. So actually how I learned about uh, the United States, because I'm an assistant professor at the University of Szczecin, and it's in like uh, western, northwestern Poland. And and I actually wrote my PhD on narratives of uh, the careers of selected NBA players. So I got into basketball fairly early, like when I was like six or seven, my father used to watch the NBA. And there was this guy called Michael Jordan and my father just loved him completely. And because of that, I developed sort of, well, not hatred, but I always wanted to, well, I was always rooting for the other guys. And New Jersey Nets uh, back in 97, 98, I think it was 97, 98 season. Yeah, Uh, they were uh, the eighth seed and they were the first team that uh, Chicago needed to like pass in order to, well, claim their, what would turn out to be their last NBA championship title. And I just got into that and I started thinking really deeper into my NBA fandom and found that, I mean, I felt something for the New Jersey Nets. And the similarity that comes to my mind is like, when you're watching wrestling, you know it's bad, but somehow you feel stuff. It makes you feel stuff. Whether we're talking about like heels or or faces, you know that the story is somewhat, well, in a bit, a bit, but you know that it will make you feel, that there will be certain emotions involved. And the New Jersey Nets were a team that made me feel stuff. And then I got deeper into like uh, analyzing the United States. I've been to the States a couple of times, and I got to know the, the people, got to see some places. And everywhere I went, people actually well, made fun of New Jersey, which was kind of sad because, I mean, I didn't really understand why people were speaking about Jersey in such terms. So I really wanted to to understand that. Hence, well, I got into writing this book, That I thought that when I got into like, the writing process, New Jersey Nets were a team that probably best Described what it meant to be from Jersey. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, when you're thinking about the New Jersey Devils, they're successful. They're a solid NHL team. When you think about uh, the New York Giants, even though they are in New Jersey, they claim to be from New York, right? So they're sort of ashamed of their heritage. Whereas the New Jersey Nets were the New Jersey Nets. You had the, the name itself, right? Nets. I mean, what kind of a name is that for, for a basketball team? It's not really creative. I mean, it's just a regular name. When you have like the random name generator for NBA teams, that's like probably one of the first names that generator could come up with. So that's why I got into all that.
1: Well, there's so much to unpack there. And that that's why it's fascinating to me as a native New Jerseyan and myself. Um, yeah, we could probably have a whole psychological conversation about <laughs> about New Jersey, having grown up in mean, such. And yeah, you're
2: right. That it would it, be great because I would like to learn from you Yeah, more about that experience.
1: Well, I mean, be, be, be careful what you wish for. But I,
2: I, mean, <laughs> I mean, look, it's I true. Mean, I mean, I'm from Poland. OK. I'm from Poland. I can relate. We're stuck between like Russia and and Germany. And we've been stuck from the beginning of our history, stuck between these two large, powerful countries. So I can relate to that.
1: I marvel, frankly, at somebody who, uh, like yourself, who is not a native of the area, grew up there or spent a lot of time there. You actually have pegged it pretty, pretty darn closely as sort of this. Let's call it an identity crisis. Right. He, having grown up. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the um, you know, the, the exercise is always, you know, where are you from, Tim? Well, uh, you know, uh, if there's if there's if I assume that there's a lack of understanding or sophistication about the New York area in that person's question, I'll just say the New York area. I grew up in New York. It's just a lot easier. Mm-hmm. right? It's convenient convention. Mm-hmm. Right. But if there is if there's a level of understanding there, I'll I'll go into the northern New Jersey thing, because as you probably have determined already, just by just the story, you know, the the, the 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 polyglot that is the New York metropolitan area. I mean, this is not unique to major gigantic metropolitan areas around the world, but very different. Right. You grew up in New York City, even in the boroughs are very different experiences. New Jersey, mm-hmm. very different than Connecticut, very different than Long Island, et cetera. Yet. There is somewhat of a common thread. They're all sort of, there's this sort of New York-ish thing that, uh, you know, for better or for worse, defines all of them when you get right down to it.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, the place that you come from really determines your whole life, which is like a cliche thing to say. It's, it's kind of stating the obvious, but but that's true. And in the case of the, the Nets, it was the same as well because they originally started in new jersey for a year and that sort of determined their destiny i think that's at least the thesis that i'm presenting here in in this book
1: yeah and that's that's, I'm trying to that's the yeah. that's the irony right having started out in new jersey which is you know, even even lost to history, frankly, which is part of sort of the story. But right, let me back up for a second. So sure. it sounds to me like you and your father uh, and others, you know, as you your NBA fandom um, almost sort of uh, coincided with, um, I guess, I guess the Nets uh, uh, ascendance, if you will, to the NBA finals uh, in those years in the um uh, in um, the late 2000s right which was it
2: started kind of uh, earlier actually oh. in the the early 90 s but uh, in the 90s, I mean I was so I was born in eighty five so I was fourteen or 15 when they made their first finals something like that so I had a lot of time to just you know as a high school kid to just follow basketball as opposed to when you grow up and do I don't know you get into studies and and you get to work, so you don't have a lot of time. So it, those were the years of my NBA fandom, but started way earlier. Like the 1995-96 90, season was probably the first that I remember like vividly, instead of just singular games. So it was around that time.
1: Yeah, and, and it's also interesting, too, because that's kind of when the team was being kind of essentially purposefully rebuilt and rebranded uh, there was the <laughs> there was the there was even the possibility around that time that that they might have been even renamed to the New Jersey Swamp Dragons. Right. So um, a very interesting time. But I guess the, the the real sort of point of my question in there was, you know, look, you, you um, clearly the identification is going on in your mind with this team, but it's rare or was rare, especially given how the NBA had, from a media perspective, really taken on a new level of interest uh, worldwide by Michael Jordan fueled and and all of that. Mm -hmm. The New Jersey Nets were not part of the featured NBA games that were hitting your screens elsewhere outside the United States. Very rare, right? There are definitely an also ran. And for them to even break into the playoffs and then actually be successful in the playoffs, um, I guess you experienced sort of the, Beginnings of that unloved and unfancied kind of dynamic, and maybe even had a special Mm -hmm. sort of feeling as they got became more successful on the court. Yeah,
2: that's true. I mean, other teams that I rooted for around this time were the Vancouver Grizzlies, about whom I also wrote a book. It's going to be published next year by Tennessee University Press about how Vancouver lost the Grizzlies. So. In my mind i have this actual trilogy of books that of failed franchises that that i sort of would like to write someday so it's the Nets, it's the vancouver grizzlies and it's the charlotte bobcats so i have like these three books that i would like to produce but i know absolutely nothing about the area of charlotte apart from the issue with the, the the toilets so, so like the misgendered toilets a couple of years ago or something like that and and that's only this stuff that I that I know yeah so the nets weren't actually well on my radar and and the first thing that I remember like vividly about nets was the trade in the year 96 90 in the season 96 97. I think it was that season, when, like, half of the franchise was traded to the Mavericks. And I remember that, I think, they traded Sean Bradley to Dallas Mavericks, one one of the the few players, uh, one of the many players who were, like, traded. And, And the first memories I have is actually, like, um, I think it was not Jim Jackson was playing for the Nets. So so it's what, he was like one of my favorite players as I was, because he was supposed to be one of the few, well, one of the, once again, the word few, sorry. Uh, he was supposed to be the next Michael Jordan in the line of many next Michael Jordans. And I actually found myself ruling for him. And, yeah, it it was actually the the first time that I, like, had the possibility of watching New Jersey Nets games. And the thing was that, actually, well, Poland isn't the most revered country uh, in the world, right? So, actually, the NBA was giving us, as in Polish television, a lot of games which weren't particularly well we didn't get like the Knicks versus the Bulls instead we got for example the Toronto Raptors who were bad at the time playing against I don't know the Nets or we I remember that we used to watch with my father the Mavericks a lot because of German television and they had Dirk Nowitzki so German television was uh, showing a lot of Dallas Mavericks games and those were like the teams that we actually were able to watch as opposed to these great NBA powerhouses they were available to us only in the playoffs because there was no alternative so otherwise we we actually got to see quite a few well bad NBA teams which was actually kind of entertaining and educational because they It was still great basketball, to be honest. So, yeah, and it expanded our knowledge of the NBA.
1: So that's really interesting. I mean, we're talking obviously a a generation of, of, or two, even of media, right? Back in the in the in the 1990s, even it was really sort of the explosion of of cable and satellite television, right? But even then, right, if Mm -hmm. the packages weren't sort of, you know, hitting your screens and stuff, that's interesting that 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 the NBA games that you were seeing were not sort of the top tier exports. Right. But the but yeah, I mean, look, there were there are these dozens of other teams. Right. That that make up the day to day existence of the league. And it's not just all Michael Jordan and and the L.A. Lakers and, and you know, uh, all the time. Right. There's a there's a there's an 82 game plus schedule, plus a two months worth of playoffs. Right. So it has to be some uh, uh, stuff that goes on before and during all that kind of stuff. So let me let me ask you this. Um, so as you become uh, intrigued mm-hmm. by this team and, and and frankly, even start to personally, I guess, relate uh, to this team for various reasons, um, what part of your scholarly self uh, kicks in and and then why go deep and how and why do you decide to focus only on that New Jersey set of years in this in this writing that you're doing versus I'm sure I know you make an allusion to the beginning years, right? The the, the New York Nats, the, the Long Island thing. And then obviously, since they've gone on to Brooklyn. But but it's curious to me why you picked literally this New Jersey section, I guess, of their lives from what, 96 or so until they moved to Brooklyn. Um, I, I'm curious as to why that that particular area, as you probably went back and learned about the history of this team
2: because of uh, the way New Jersey the New Jersey ness of the Nets was treated by the Brooklyn uh, management and and like the the owners of the team like uh, during the last two years they have eliminated the words New Jersey from the away jerseys and the new newer Newark uh, court. Uh, also did not have the name New Jersey on it, just Nets. So the way they tried to break away with the past, I found it kind of well, I wouldn't say I was offended by that, but I found it kind of unfair because, I mean, there were people who were capable of playing basketball in in New Jersey and they had an entertaining team. I mean, they made the finals twice. For two years in a row, they have been in the NBA Finals. And they had solid players. I mean, they had had fans who actually cared for that team. So I found it, like, unfair to these fans. And, well, I also wanted to, I mean, every time you write a book, you learn something. You you get motivated to, uh, like, well, to dig deeper into a certain topic. And the more I dug into the topic, the more I found my interest in the Nets validated. And well, I was just just saddened by, by the whole thing, by the Nets marketing, by the way New Jersey was treated by like the whole ownership. And, and that's what I wanted to write about this team. And these and these players who just sort of had, well, whether it was a case of bad luck, bad timing, pick whatever you like, they just couldn't catch a break. And I wanted to write about that because I found it captivating and interesting. So
1: that see, that's that resonates with me. And, and that's certainly something we've discovered on this, the on the various conversations across a whole wider range of, of sports and, and and previous incarnations, I guess, is what we could call them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the questions that I often ask guests in situations where teams have had either previous ports of call or don't or, or places of domicile uh, or frankly, have just gone through rebrands and have not moved physically, but Mm -hmm. for whatever other reason, maybe a new arena or they move from a New York City to a New Jersey or whatever, still uh, in the region. And that's the where does these sort of legacies, where do these legacies live? Right. And Mm -hmm. and frankly, how much or how little do the current owners of these teams and the leagues that they're in uh, embrace or distance themselves from their previous lives. And it sounds to me like, and I think rightly so, right? You're, you're, you're talking about a Brooklyn ownership group and I get it's a business, right? But how much or how little one retains the history, Um, you know, the nets as a franchise, I mean, they didn't start in Brooklyn. I mean, I'm sure there's a whole generation of fans who think they did, right. Which is Mm -hmm. its own issue. Right. But you know, there was stuff that happened before the Brooklyn version of the nets. And, If you're a fan, right, of the current version, I I would imagine you would at least be curious as to what came before Mm -hmm. uh, this team in the Barclays Center, right?
2: Yeah. And I mean, the whole history of the New Jersey Nets is actually what made this particular roster possible because, I mean, Kyrie Irving grew up in New Jersey, And uh, he grew up a a New Jersey kid, just fan of the Nets. And he wanted to return home. Even though, I mean, that was the narrative, that he was returning home. Even though he wasn't returning home. But without Kyrie Irving, the Nets don't get Kevin Durant. And without Kevin Durant, uh, you don't get what's going on right now. So they have actually improved this season. And this season may be Finally, well, the year when they make a run to the Eastern Conference Finals, maybe even the Finals, who knows. So, I mean, without this whole history, you don't get this particular incarnation of the Nets. And the fact that the the Brooklyn Nets were sort of hesitant to embrace that history, that it took them eight years, I think, since they relocated, uh, yeah, because they relocated in 2012 and in 2020, only in 2020 did they introduce throwback new jersey nets, like jerseys. So, I mean, eight years is a lot of time in sports. It's like a whole dynasty or two, even, if you want to like be, I don't know, even more Picky about whether whether a dynasty takes I don't know two championships, three championships. So eight years is is a lot. and and the reason that they paid homage to New Jersey, well, that's kind of I I think that it was actually Irving's doing that they decided to to pay homage to New Jersey. So it took a superstar player, With a big ego, big personality who convinced the team that it was actually, that it's actually okay to remember your history, to remember your past, which is exactly what they did with these jerseys that like pretend to be old New Jersey Nets jerseys, but they aren't really. So yeah, that's what I found interesting as well.
1: Yeah, it's also the yeah, it's it's also hard not to be cynical. Right. I mean, a a great example uh, is in the NHL with the former Hartford Whalers. Right. A a, a, a much beloved and perhaps maybe fits your sort of uh, uh, your your thesis. Well, the story it is, right? Yeah, Yeah. right. So in between Boston and New York, same same kind of dynamic. I don't know how much of a hockey fan you are, but same same sort of dynamic, I think, could fit your narrative. Um, Mm -hmm. And they moved to Carolina or Raleigh, North Carolina specifically. And. Only recently within the last handful of years. And now, you know, so the Hartford fans, right, are and they're frankly still quite a few of them. It's the the highest selling jersey merchandise in the NHL. That's not a current franchise. It's still a pretty Mm -hmm. well known and well regarded logo in, in the hearts and the minds of people of Hartford. But
2: it's a beautiful logo, by the way. It's gorgeous. And and
1: we've had a couple of conversations as to how that got that that uh, was built and and created. Mm -hmm. But but the the, the thing is, though, that that you talk to Hartford fans and they're kind of like, we love the fact that we're being remembered again. Right. But yet there's also that sort of it's dripping with cynicism because it's clearly a money grab. Uh, and And the franchise currently kind of benefits from that without much regard or benefit, frankly, to the old Hartford fans.
2: Yeah. And I mean, the same thing happened with the tie dye jerseys, which were reintroduced and they were presented as like a homage paid to New Jersey, even though the Nets wore these jerseys just for a season. I think it was 1991, if I remember correctly. So, and they were criticized heavily for wearing those jerseys. And now you pay homage to the team by wearing the jerseys, which were there just for a season, which is like a blink of an eye in sports terms. And yet you present that as a sort of, uh, well, as you're looking towards the past with pride, even though these jerseys, were definitely not looked at with pride around the same time that uh, around the time that they came around so it was just kind of confusing to me why these particular jerseys and and why around that time sort of how much happened there's like no logical explanation to that apart from business reasons as you've said it's just a cash grab. was just a cash grab.
1: All right, so let's let's back up for a second. Let's go back into the the early. Let's go into the the mid nineteen seventies when, in earnest, the Nets uh, fully came back, or at least started to think about coming back to New Jersey. Um, and I guess maybe you could set the table a little bit, right? The the NBA absorption, if you will, or merger, whatever you want to call it. I mean, there are different per the different p- uh, points of view on on what you would call it, actually. But the the Nets, right, had been uh, oddly successful in the last years of the, you know slowly but surely disintegrating ABA and doing you know fairly well uh, in Long Island, I would argue they weren't sort of drawing with respect to how well they were doing on the court. Um, but it's an interesting sort of backdrop, right as to 1976, 1977, you know the leagues are merging. finally, this competition is over. Um, the Nets have survived this merger, or at least it uh, will go on. Um, but it obviously is almost sort of the uh, maybe emblematic of uh, the good and the bad of that, and 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 the Nets franchise. Maybe a little setup for for that, and Dr. J obviously playing a starring role in that, and maybe not for the yeah. right reasons.
2: Yeah. So the, the NBA, the ABA, basically is able to survive for, well, the ABA was dying, was evident. And out of the six remaining franchises during the last season, four actually joined the NBA. So it was the Nets. I think it was also the Pacers, the Nuggets, and the Spurs, and the Kentucky Colonels, and the Spirits of St. Louis folded. Well, the Spirits of St. Louis were interesting in their own right, by the way. Uh, so when the final NBA season concludes, the Nets are the champions, and it's the New York Nets. And as you said, the star player is um Dr. J, right, Julius Irving, who was uh, well, I don't remember if he was from Brooklyn, or, I mean, he was from New York, right, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, he, I yeah, New I, York. yeah, indeed. Yeah, so he was a New York playground legend, and well, in order to actually be able to play in the New York metropolitan area, I think it was like 75, there was like a 75-mile radius when it comes to competition, so you couldn't have another team in the same, uh, well, in the proximity of I think it was 75 miles and number. 29. Yeah. There's a,
1: sort of those, those, uh, those, uh, those restrictions, if you will. And, and, yeah. and the, the the territorial rights, so to speak. And by the way, he was born in Roosevelt, Long Island, which was yeah, okay. pretty area of sort of that Long Island into Queens, New York kind of thing. So yes, okay. definitely so, a New York guy.
2: Yeah. Okay. So not Brooklyn. So my bad. Um, and the, uh, So in his three years, when he... So he enters the ABA and he's, well, the biggest superstar that the league has. And uh, he plays for Virginia Squires, I think. And then uh, Squires are unable to stay competitive in the market. So they collapse and and they trade uh, Dr. J to another APA team, which is the New York uh, Nets. And uh, when the Nets entered the NBA, they entered the NBA as the New York Nets, but they entered the NBA without Dr. J. Because in order to be able to play there, uh, they need to pay the merger settlement. And it's around like $5 million, which was a lot back then. And I think that the team owner at the time said that the merger agreement killed the Nets as an NBA franchise because in order to stay in the region, they needed to, they had to trade Dr. J and they basically traded him for cash. I think it was two and a half million, something like that, in order to be able to pay the amount that was necessary. And the whole amount, I think it it was around 11 million. So they just got two and a half million for Dr. J. And they had problems drawing, at least at the beginning. And they had to play, I think, at Rutgers Center a year later when they moved to Jersey. Oh, yeah. All I right. So let me, let, let, me stop, let me stop. I mean, please, let me stop. Let me stop you there. Let me stop. Yeah. Let me stop you there because. They impacted the franchise for a number of years. Yeah. Let me so, stop like you there. You said, I mean, it's emblematic of, of the team already that it entered the league at, a, at such a disadvantage without their star player.
1: And they got basically nothing in return. Yeah, so so that's it. I mean, so in many respects, the New York Knicks, right, almost were either lucky or cunning or both in their ability to defang, I guess, whatever the Nets would be coming into the league, right? Talk about defending their – literally just essentially taking their heart and soul, that team, Dr. J, and essentially forcing a sale – to make that happen. So it's, it's ironic or maybe not ironic. I mean, either the Nets were, excuse me, the Knicks, the New York Knicks, right. Are almost a, a villain in this story, perhaps, perhaps clearly a villain in the story in that, um, either through luck or through cunning, um, this, uh, the best of times and the worst of times for this Nets franchise, they finally get to, they survive the merger yet here they are completely defanged because their bread and butter, their their main star attraction has to be sold in order to pay the bills and and maintain their status in this new league.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, also, I mean, the Nets found themselves too often trying to emulate the Knicks, although that happened later. But uh, yeah, at, at the beginning, they were at a disadvantage, and, and for a number of seasons, they have their issues, right? I mean, they're trying, they, they are able to draft Bernard King. They get Michael Ray Richardson from the Nets, from the Knicks in a trade. I'm sorry for that. And they even have a remote possibility of, of getting Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who seriously consider becoming a net in 1981, because of the, the proximity of New Jersey to New York, because he wanted to leave the Lakers. So net, the New Jersey was one of his old preferred destinations. And finally, in the summer of 1981, they, they, they get, I mean, luck strike, strikes, finally, because they get a new coach in Larry Brown, and they get a 21 year old power forward named Buck Williams, who becomes the first New Jersey Nets franchise player for a number of seasons. So let me so. back up for let me back up for a second. So
1: okay. um, in the in the as the the Nets uh, get absorbed into the NBA, mm-hmm. um, okay. I guess the question is why. From your perception and your your uh, research, why wouldn't they stay in Long Island at the Nassau Coliseum, where at least they'd, they'd established some kind of winning tradition? I wouldn't say maybe huge fan support, maybe. and mm-hmm. And and then instead turn towards a completely new and uncharted life in New Jersey when when there wasn't even a stadium ready for them yet.
2: Yeah, that's that's a really good question, because who knows, right? That's I mean, there are a lot of confusing decisions in the history of the New Jersey Nets. And that's just that's just one of them. Why did they decide to, to move to New Jersey, even though they had to pay the Knicks still for a number of years, and they had to give away their draft picks later on as well to the Knicks or exchange draft picks for not meeting payments? So it's a really confusing decision that I don't really, really understand that, that move. Well, as they, well. They, cer-
1: they certainly weren't drawing very well. I mean, I, you yeah. know, and obviously their first year in the in the NBA, right, didn't help because they didn't have Dr. J and yeah. they almost had, had written off the first season, which is an unfortunate way to start your new
2: life in the big old NBA. Yeah, and they play at Rutgers University Center, and the the attendance there, I think, was like eight thousand. So that's not a lot. Even even if uh, the arena would be at capacity, still, that's that's not a lot of fans coming into into the games. Well, so I I, I will tell you.
1: Let me. I'll interrupt for a second. I, I remember. So this is frankly when I sort of became a New Jersey Nets fan. Right? This is around my oh, sort okay. of years. And And <laughs> um, indeed, right. So the promise of. Uh, this new, well, the Meadowlands, right? So the Meadowlands Sports Complex, right? The mm-hmm. the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 original Giant Stadium, right, debuted in, in the fall of 1976. The New York Cosmos soccer team came in 1977 and Pelé it was a huge sort of thing. And it was, you know, one of those sort of new modern stadiums at that time. And 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 the, the promise then of the next piece of that uh, complex beyond just a Giant Stadium and a horse racing facility was... An indoor arena. And um, but it's interesting how it's clearly the Knicks were also sort of continuing to to uh, uh, p- play the spoiler to prevent the Knicks for the Nets from moving even from Long Island to New Jersey. They sort of it, it, regardless of the territorial rights, they were still getting in the way of that. But I remember my first ever games were those during those four seasons they played at the at the rack the rutgers yeah. athletic center right and it yeah. it's interesting cuz it was it felt very temporary right um mm-hmm. but it was a hell of a lot of fun because number one the new jersey nets were an nba team great number two it, the 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 rutgers athletic center 8000 or so seats was still pretty kind of intimate and it was kind of a really cool way to be pretty darn close to these nba players and stars. I remember bumping into uh, 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 Bernard King and and uh, a, a couple of other players just, you know, because they were that was the only way you could get into the stadium was to go by this by walk by the court. Um, it was a hell of a time. And it was certainly not the, I don't know, distant, palatial, holier than thou like Madison Square Garden experience. And that was kind of cool by by comparison.
2: Mm-hmm. But also I mean, NBA, player, NBA in particular wasn't as popular back then, right? When you're talking about professional basketball in the 1980s, the one thing that comes to mind is is drugs and, and players had drug issues. And I mean, New Jersey Nets suffered from that as well. Whether we're talking about Orlando Woolbridge in in the later part of the 1980s, on whether we're talking about Michael Ray Richardson, who came from the New York Knicks next because of uh, his drug issues or whether we're talking about bernard king although later uh, these old players had certain substance abuse issues so and as uh, opposed to the college game which seemed like pure is that's that's the lesson that I, that's the, the the lesson that i got from like reading the newspapers and just seeing the coverage then that NCA games got as opposed to NBA games, which were just like, you got these tiny like scores and this guy scored the most points. And and that that was basically it. Whereas when we're talking about college games, the, the coverage was, was much greater. And what you're talking about, the intimacy. So now maybe I can ask you a question. Was it the same, like the atmosphere, was it very different from attending Rutgers games?
1: No, it felt to me like this was the, the it was appealing, certainly, that was that the the pro game at the top level was coming mm-hmm. to New Jersey, right? So this is um goes back to your sort of thesis earlier on. The New York Giants obviously had moved to the Meadowlands, and there was some consternation, and it, it played out later on too about New Jersey, New York and what the labels are. Um and, and that that sort of broke the mold and sort of uh, it created a, a conversation about where the team is playing relative to its name. The Nets, right, were now really the and I don't put the New York Cosmos in that, too, because they they sort of had their own sort of dynamic and they just dropped the name New York altogether. And that was a whole sort of that was a circus. The New Jersey, the New Jersey Nets, though, to your point, right, they were the first. Um, not first historically, but but in this sort of times time frame a dedicated New Jersey-branded prof- top-tier professional team. And I think a lot of New Jerseyans, to your point earlier, um, mm-hmm. found that uh, fan- uh, alluring. And with the knowledge that a stadium was being built, right, and the and giant stadium there uh, and its immediate success for both soccer and football uh, really kind of added a beacon of, promised stability and like this is not only real now and temporary for a couple of years at Rutgers um but will be more real in the years to come when we have quote unquote our own home facility. it will be the cementing, if you will, of reality of New Jersey having its own professional NBA basketball franchise. so I would I would characterize the the crowd as being really into it and frankly enjoying the intimacy along the way.
2: Yeah. I mean, as, as somebody who like prefers smaller leagues to, to the the bigger, bigger stuff. I mean, I can totally relate to that. I mean, I prefer intimacy as well. So, so I can get behind that as well. That's what I'm thinking.
1: We also had on our uh, show, I think our episode number 100, a couple of years back, um, Current New York Yankees broadcaster, but then former New Jersey Nets broadcaster John Sterling. Um, mm-hmm. It's a great episode if, if if our listeners haven't heard it, um, because before he became sort of a, a longtime Yankee voice, he was John Sterling was a, a sports talk guy in New York and literally was was hustling lots of startup leagues and teams from the WHA and and even the NHL and and but he became kind of the voice the spirited voice, shall we say, of the New Jersey Nets. And some of his signature catch calls were, he, he, you know, when when they were competitive. And this was like the, this was the years when Kevin Lockery was coach. Uh, I played against his uh, son in in grammar school uh, in northern New Jersey. Ironically, um, they were the gutty, gritty New Jersey Nets. That was his tagline. Um, and it was they were they were gutty and gritty and they were not expected to win. They were not winning. They were. But they were. They had a lot of character and soul and. You kind of kind of what you said earlier, you kind of you kind of uh, identified with them because here they were, this New Jersey team in in the big, bad NBA. And, you know, they they weren't always competitive, but when they were, you know, Jan Van Predikoff and Bernard King and Bernard Sky, BBK, you come all these great names. Um, It was Mm -hmm. fun. They were fun. They were fun and interesting and intriguing. And you knew they were going somewhere, um, even if they weren't performing really well at the moment
2: yeah and i mean there's a lot of players when you go through the history of new jersey nets they had a lot of great players it was just a case of i don't know like wrong place or, or wrong time as i have said when you're talking about guys even from from my past like when i was growing up there was this whole excitement around like stefan marbury when he came to new jersey and then it turned out that he wasn't such a great fit, but eventually they got Jason Kidd for him, which was great, which worked out greatly for the Nets. So you had guys like that. You had Derek Coleman, who was supposed to be, I mean, in the present day NBA, Derek Coleman would be a perfect forward, like so he was somewhere between number three and number four positions. So a lot of great players actually played in for the New Jersey. So, yeah, I can totally understand the excitement for that because you got to witness a lot of great players. And, I mean, when I started talking about Buck Williams, he also was this blue-collar tough player that every coach basically wanted to have because he conducted himself. I mean, there isn't a bad story about Buck Williams. The team was throwing his name around in, like, trade rumors. And until he he basically was okay with it until he reached that breaking point and they they had to trade him. So there was a lot of exciting and and interesting players from the history of the Nets.
1: Yeah, look, I think too. You know, obviously, uh, turn the turn of the uh, the decade, nineteen eighty one, when the team finally mm-hmm. moved into into the. Um, well, it's now uh, well, it used to uh, most recently known as the IZ Center, and that was the Continental Arena before that. But the Brendan Brendan Byrne Meadowlands Arena. And there's even a controversy around that, so add that to your story, right? The mm-hmm. the naming of it, right? Brendan Byrne, the governor of New Jersey, former governor of New Jersey. The time finally when it got built, uh, not necessarily the most um, bit revered politician, shall we say? Uh, having his name on a new stadium. So some people just literally called it the Meadowlands Arena, even in advertising. Some of the teams like the New Jersey Rockets of the Indoor League at the time, they wouldn't say Brendan Burn Arena; They would say Meadowlands Arena because that's how how controversial it was. But it was a brand new and gorgeous stadium. And it certainly gave some credence to the fact that, hey, the Nets have arrived. And it's interesting. It was a promising start, but, you know, it didn't. Um, they still were in the shadow for sure with the Knicks and the rest of the league.
2: Yeah, totally. And I mean, and when we think about Brendan Byrne in this case, we think about, uh, I mean, he, he put forth some laws regarding the environment, right? But at the same time, he made an exception for the Meadowlands. So he wanted to protect the environment. But in the case of when the big leagues came calling, he, he made an exception. So, so as you said, that, that's kind of controversial. And in the year of 1981, as I, as I said earlier, they get Buck Williams, they get coach Larry Brown, and they actually are well. I'm afraid to use the word, but they are good. I mean, Buck Williams, he's extremely durable. He's he, he looks like he's got like all muscle, right? And he, I think, he missed just one game in. It was six seasons just one regular season game so we're talking about the durable tough player who always puts in the effort and you get a young promising coach in, in larry brown who was actually an aba player who cares about winning who cares about this team they get uh, michael ray richardson they get Otis birdsong and when they are supposed to play their first exhibition game in the Brandon Byrne Arena, there's a power failure during an exhibition game. And this is sort of like the recurring motive, uh, or as we like to put it in literature studies, we're talking about foreshadowing of the things that are to come in the 1980s. Yeah, sure. Uh, in
1: injuries, for example, I mean, Daryl Dawkins, right, was uh, mm-hmm. a star center and, and was sort of a, a, one of those players that you try to build around. Right. And have a Buck Williams or, you know, a, a utility player, you know, like a Mike Jeminski. Um, But, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, he slips and falls and, and hurts his back further and, and, you know, all kinds of things sort of befall. And you wonder it's almost like the Clippers, right? The Clippers, I think, are maybe the only other analog I can think of. Right. That you know, in their sort of L.A. and then Mm -hmm. San Diego and then L.A. again and, you know, back and forth. Um, It's it's almost like one step forward, one step backward. I mean, they they get to they get to neutral, it seems, a lot of times during the 80s and even the early 90s.
2: Yeah. but I mean, isn't it like the same for many like mid-tier NBA franchise? That's why I mean, the new the history of the New Jersey Nets maybe more than anything else allows us to see how hard it actually is to be successful in a league as competitive as the NBA because you have this team which supposedly does all the right things they hire the right coaches you have such big sna- big names as as i said Larry Brown you have Bill Fitch who was beyond a shadow of a doubt a great NBA coach you get Chuck Daly who was a great NBA coach and you, you're just, I mean, things happen. It's just that things happen to you for one reason or the other, provoked or, or unprovoked even. It's not like caused by any sort of hubris or whatever. Just, I mean, by sheer lack you're, or lack thereof, you're unable to put things together. And and that's just that's how it how it happens. Well, look, it
1: also it, I think another sort of thread in that, embedded in that, is um uh the fact that they're also I mean, look, even even as the Nets became truly competitive and and started making the finals in the in the uh in the early aughts with uh, uh you know Jason Kidd and and and, and the mm-hmm. like, right? Um uh the idea of the Nets in the finals, or or as a as a major player in the top tier on on the court, right? It's it's one thing to actually do that, but even still in the New York New Jersey metropolitan area, I and mean, even in this amongst the uh, you know the 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 intelligentsia, if you will, in the NBA or the basketball world. You know, it still feels like the Nets are sort of the the also Rans, the number twos, the 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 Mets versus the Yankees uh, mm-hmm. in the New York area, the the Jets versus the Giants, right? Some of that is uh, 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 for many years Real Madrid versus Atletico, right? Only only recently has Atletico become sort mm-hmm. of similar tier, right? There's always yeah, you know, this is the sort of derby, I guess, kind of dynamic of having two teams in a metropolitan area, and for many years. Right, and especially in the New Jersey realm, the Nets were kind of the the other team, right? And with with yeah. a capital O, the other team, right? It's you know the right. Knicks. The rivalry wasn't even much of a rivalry. That's how much the Knicks overshadowed this team, even yeah. despite the fact that the Nets were competitive in and in NBA Finals for the first time. I mean, to me, in the early aughts, that was having grown up being a New Jersey Nets fan. It was incredible to see. I couldn't believe my eyes, frankly. That's how much I didn't expect it.
2: Yeah. And the thing was that actually when they got successful, the Knicks were sort of becoming. I think it was the worst time in in Knicks history if I number correctly, just from like the the wins and losses. Well, you're talking after the after the Pat Ewing years. after the, right. Yeah, yeah, after the Pat Ewing years. After so they make the finals in '99, and everything just sort of start to starts to collapse because of injuries and because of bad management decisions, and the Nets become good at uh, around the same time, and yet people aren't coming to the games. I and mean, the Nets are playing. Princeton offense, which is just sort of like a team oriented style. So you see all the players. You don't have hero ball in New Jersey. You have this like gritty blue collar team. You have a team which relies on Jason Kidd, who is the ultimate like team player who cares about his teammates, who is universally beloved by his teammates, even though he, well, he had some issues in his personal life around the same time. Let's leave it at that. And uh, they're playing tough, gritty basketball in the 2002 playoffs. And yet the league, well, the narrative around the league is that, while well, they are facing sort of the surprise of the season, the Boston Celtics. So we have the Lakers on one side and the league and people around the league, they are rooting for the Celtics to, to play uh, the Lakers in the finals. They want to once again relive what they what they witnessed in the 1980s, and and you have these like narratives which are so promising, and yet Nets spoil all that. Well, the Celtics foul Strickland against Kidd? we are going to knock it away.
3: Strickland falls down, and they're going to let him play it out. There's about a three second difference between the shot and game clock the new jersey nets will continue one of the most remarkable one season turnarounds in nba history from 26 wins last year to a trip to the nba finals an amazing story the new jersey nets are in the nba finals byron scott and the nets eliminate the boston celtics in six games it's been a wonderful season for the celtics a great turnaround But they fall short to what was the better team in this series. Once again, our final score from the Fleet Center, the Nets 96 and the Celtics 88. Nets win the series four games to two for P.J. Carlissimo, Lewis Johnson and our entire talented crew. This is Mike Green. We now send you to the second game of our playoff doubleheader. We go to Marv
2: Albert at the Staples Center in L.A. And they sort of like, in my opinion, like suffered the grunt of that that the games aren't going to be as marketable and sort of they become more of an afterthought. And, and the thing is that in, when we're talking about the 2002 Western Conference Finals, those were probably the most controversial conference finals or just play, that's probably the most controversial controversial series that I remember, that I have witnessed. So I understand why people were sort of disappointed in the league, And yet the Nets like suffered because of that. Like years later, we found out that there was a refereeing scandal and some people think that the series was fixed. I mean, I don't know, to be honest. So so the Nets like suffered because of the, the misperception that the NBA was, well, they suffered because of the, how should I put it? They suffer because, so the image of NBA suffers, and who, I don't know how to put it. Okay, I, I dug myself into a hole. sorry for that. So um, the image of the league suffers, and I mean, the Lakers are still gonna, gonna get their money. The New York Knicks are gonna get their money as well. So it's the Nets who, who suffer the most because of the tainted image of the league because people weren't actually interested in the series. And next year they played the Spurs and it's probably the, I think it was the least watched series in, well, since the Jordan years, it was the least watched NBA series. Like you had small, two small market teams and people actually, well, because of people ignoring that series, it was highly competitive. And people just don't remember these these series as as well or as profoundly, even though they were highly interesting because of like the the lack of marketability of both teams, because both teams played like team oriented basketball, which could be appreciated by basketball purists. But not really by like an average NBA fan who just wants to see stars compete. Yeah, that's that's so that, that
1: that's really sort of telling because yeah, I mean you, you even see this that sort of dynamic with the New Jersey Devils, right? The their Meadowlands Arena uh, co-tenants there. I mean there there was a, a a Stanley Cup series after I think when they won the Devils won their third. Stanley Cup championship against the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim, yet another kind of sort of shadow type, second type of uh, uh, franchise in a bigger metropolitan area, Los Angeles. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think, too, the fact that that a team is in New Jersey in this respect and the, the Nets story, you know, it's not like, you know, your agents are. Looking to find you a place in New Jersey, right? It's not as sexy as New York, even even though you might still be in that that market in terms of media. Um, it's not as sexy as Los Angeles or Chicago, right, where there are lots of other uh, opportunities, shall we say? Um, it's not sort of a prime destination, and and that that sort of I don't know that logic it just kind of almost compounds itself, right? It, it, it you almost get a uh, an inferiority complex, it just kind of keeps reiterating itself, especially mm-hmm. if, there's a, if there's a bad season or two, and even despite a really good season or two, uh, the attendance and stuff. Right. So you wonder, I guess, as if you look back on this, this story, right, does a New Jersey, quote unquote, saddle the franchise, regardless of how well or not well that they do Um I mean, I can't I can't extend that logic to the New Jersey devils that much. It's even worse because there are three franchises in the New York area. But um, it 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 maybe speaks to what you were talking about earlier. New Jersey is something in between. And and when a team in New Jersey and branded New Jersey does well, um, it's odd because usually it's the second choice of everybody involved, right, whether it's Philadelphia or New York. And when a New Jersey mm-hmm. itself tends to succeed, it almost feels like it's a rarity or a, a an occasional than it is something sustainable and, and real over time.
2: Yeah, and especially when you have a guy who actually loves to be here. I mean, you have a guy like Jason Kidd, and the team was actually going out of its way to, to accommodate him, even though after the finals, there's this story that he actually had a chance of joining the Spurs, so another small market team. And he was actually, so he was in San Antonio. He agreed to leave, but when he was on the plane, he sort of changed his mind when he was going home. And he said, I want to stay in New Jersey, which is like from the perspective of sports, I mean, you have stars who want to play in the, these big markets, right? And, and we've seen that when we were witnessing the player, the player empowerment era, which is still going on, which is nothing bad, by the way, because, I mean, teams have held dominions for over players for far too long, right? But uh, you have players like Yanis, for example, who are okay with playing for a small market team because players will join you right if when you're a guy like Jason Kidd and the present day nba it would probably be easier to form a well a better team around that player as opposed to how it was during that time because of like the lack of marketing possibilities and another thing that was interesting about these nets was that most of the players lived in in the New York metropolitan area anyway so they didn't actually well, grow roots in around the New Jersey and I can totally get the analogy with the New Jersey Devils and well maybe I can ask you as, as a native of New Jersey how did Devils actually manage to stay in New Jersey? Was it because of winning? Was it the winning that turned the tide and actually made them stay? Or did something better happen? Because I mean I know hockey, but I'm just you know, I just watched the playoffs. I think
1: uh that the so there are two, two two answers, I think, to that. Number one mm-hmm. is um, uh, it's obviously three teams in the New York metro area. And from a geographical perspective, um, it's spread out enough, right? You have a team in Manhattan in the Rangers. You have a team or at least did have a team solidly on Long Island, not sort of at the cusp like they are now with their brand new arena, the Islanders. Mm-hmm. Uh, And the Devils, uh, essentially, you know, with everything New Jersey, westward to Pennsylvania and down towards Philadelphia. Right. So there was a a region there. I think, though, the other the major reason is, um, I think, is because. Pro hockey, from a fan perspective, from a media perspective, from a consumption perspective, is much more of a provincial kind of dynamic. Um, It's much more of a local passion kind of thing versus a national thing. I mean, yes, there are national games, but the NHL is not um, has always had always struggled as being sort of a nationally palatable sport. The NBA is different. NBA does have a national footprint is much more significantly branded. You can you know, you may find you can live in in Atlanta and be interested in it in a nuggets versus uh LA Lakers game. Um hockey's really n- not as much that. It's much more mm-hmm. regional. Um and I mm-hmm. think uh, it's also more dependent on uh on attendance and that kind of stuff. Um mm-hmm. I-, I don't think many people would have predicted it. I think the fact that they arrived in 1981 is because there's a brand new arena. And the, and mm-hmm. that team itself had had its challenges having been in places like Kansas City and Denver and and that never really succeeding, too. So ironically, going to New Jersey. But um, I, I think, though, it does speak yeah. maybe a little bit to what you're talking. as a media market. New Jersey is not a, a media market, per se, as defined in, in, in the United States. Right. There's the New York metropolitan area media market and New Jersey itself is a slice of that. And it's very hard to market a team. That's only regionally very centric and powerful. And so the New York Islanders in hockey and the New Jersey Devils, if they want to market themselves and advertise, they have to essentially buy the entire marketplace when two thirds of the market really it's not close for them to go visit and to go to a game. So it's 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 a weird dynamic. But um, I guess my point is that the Devils certainly didn't hurt themselves by playing well and winning a few uh, cups. Stanley mm-hmm. Cup's but i let's put it in perspective their 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 championship parades right occur mm-hmm. in the parking lot of the Meadowlands arena okay that's not mm-hmm. the same thing as the New York Rangers winning a Stanley Cup and getting to get a con, a, a, a confetti yep. uh a parade down the 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 cathedral or the uh, canyon of champions in 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 wall street Right in downtown New York, Um, and that perception actually speaks volumes. Right, as a New Jerseyan, I'm full of pride. Right, but um, it's not the same thing as the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup because there's a lot of it's New York and it's ticker tape parade and New Jersey. uh, You know, it's a bunch of fans in in a parking lot. I I don't know if that changes. Right, if that if if the if the Devils win again. You know, in Newark, I mean, Newark is not the sexiest place, sadly, in the firmament of the NHL,
2: right? Mm-hmm. But how does that apply to the fact that NHL is more of an international league? In this sense that you have players from uh, different, uh, you know, different countries, a lot of players from different countries, as opposed to uh, the NBA. Like the basketball has an inner city feel to it. Right. So as you've said, like uh, hockey is more of a passion, uh, like a passion thing. So also when you have players joining the league from from Europe, right, when you have Yanis and he's okay with playing in Milwaukee. You have Nikola Jokic, who's okay with playing in Denver, because that's the team that like picked him. You had a guy like Drazen Petrovic, who was happy playing in New Jersey. And if the team would be winning, he undoubtedly would stay in New Jersey, but because of the fact that it wasn't winning, there was some frustration involved, and he wanted to, like, take some time off and, and play in Europe and then reunite with Dino Raja in, in, in Boston, but his untimely death, like, it put these plans into the idea, into the area of just plans or rumors or, or whatever, or unfulfilled dreams. So how do you think the international aspect ways into that that you have people who are willing to stay and grow roots in new jersey as opposed to just just living in the big city and enjoying the perks of living in the big city
1: yeah well but also also the the secondary revenue streams from from that right you know the the endorsements and the you know new york city obviously is, is a much more dynamic place than the suburbs of new jersey even though they're only 20 miles away from each other right um, I, look, I would. I guess I really would reframe that and say, the NBA as a league, and pro mm-hmm. basketball as its product, has been just better or more fortunate, and maybe because it's in urban areas and and has grown up as a sort of an urban sport, so to speak, over the years, has done a better job of branding itself. Right, the NHL, um, st- you know, obviously the world's best hockey league. Um, with some of the best players internationally, but I, I, the reality is that more people know Giannis than they do Sidney Crosby, you know, the yeah, Pittsburgh Penguins, true. right? And I think that's just the fact that that hockey, at least in the United States, well, hockey also the NHL is also much more Canadian, um, less so, right? Over the decades as as the mm-hmm. NHL has expanded into. into Hockey, like hot region hockey hot southern regions like Phoenix, right? Yeah. Right, or, or, yeah. or, or even you know, two franchises in, in Southern California, um, or or Raleigh, North Carolina, right? I mean, I, Florida, yeah. too. You know, I, I guess the point is that despite the right moves in terms of trying to um colonize southern markets, non traditional hockey markets, I think the success of the teams in the NHL have been at a local and regional level, but has not sort of made that leap. And maybe that's branding. And maybe, mm-hmm. frankly, that's just hockey and cold and, and winter and the product relative to that of basketball, which is a little bit more accessible to more people, right? No People, mm-hmm. people who live and grow up, grew up in, in Miami or Fort Lauderdale actually with the Florida Panthers or Tampa Bay or, 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 or Phoenix, right. Um, th- there, there's definitely a hockey community there, but it's not as robust, say, uh, as say in Minnesota or in Chicago or in these cold weather places where hockey is just part of the part of your heritage. Same with basketball. I mean, basketball, I think is much more accessible anywhere because it's a smaller court. He can play indoors and you can play outdoors. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I,
2: was, I, I'm, I'm just speculating, but the point, the point is, I think that just was the playing. initial idea that you could like during winters, you could just play it indoors. So that's how the sport originated, right? To keep kids busy during the winter months. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think
1: I think it's a case of that. And look, I just I think hockey is just by definition it's always been a harder national sport to grasp. Frankly, some of it's also because the NHL really was only in the Northeast and Chicago until 1969, right? Mm-hmm. They they were very late in terms of trying to expand and the World Hockey Association, all, all that stuff. But but look, I mean, I, I want to mm-hmm. sort of wrap sort of put a cul-de-sac on this. I, the the sure. whole idea of New your initial theme at the beginning of this conversation, to me, only feels strengthened uh, by this by your by your by this narrative and this conversation. Um, you know, New Jersey is what it is. It is it, in, in between things. There are there is clearly culture and and its own thing with within the world. But the reality is it's in the midst of bigger metropolitan areas and sexier places. Um, And I'm guessing that's part of why. uh, The the idea of moving the team back to, quote unquote, to New York at some point in the uh, the the latter part of the the 2000s and the early part of the uh, 2010s, maybe you could help us wrap up as to what your perception and the dynamic that you sort of researched and saw as to why giving up on New Jersey, even with a brand new new arena in 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 Newark for a couple of years, that didn't seem to be the elixir. Why why move across the 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 river to New York, in this case Brooklyn? Um was that genius? Was it that desperation? Was that just why not New Jersey further, I guess? I mean that's
2: that's a sort of really Good question, and and to be honest, there's there's no good answer because as we see from the early struggles of the Brooklyn Nets, I mean, there, the bad luck followed them straight to Brooklyn, right? When we we're talking about like the the trade with the Boston Celtics, which set the franchise back for like six seasons or something like that. When we're talking about even injuries to Kyrie Irving. Uh, the injury to James Harden, I mean, KD having his foot on the line against uh, the Milwaukee Bucks in line game, it was six of, of the Western, of the Eastern Conference semifinals. It's just, you can't shake off the the sort of, the bad luck that's, that has followed this franchise. And that's what I found the mo- most intriguing in this narrative. in in that, even though it's not mentioned in in the book, right? because I finished uh, off the book in the year 2012, when they leave, so when they leave, my interest fades as well. I'm assuming that the move was, well, the move was financial because they wanted to revamp the Brooklyn area, right? They wanted to like gentrify Brooklyn and, uh, The reason that the local, they displaced people and the local community actually was outraged by that. And there were some protests, even the actress Rosie Perez was uh, involved in the protests. And you have a rapper, well, a hip hop Mongol basically like Jay-Z who is doing the gentrifying instead of actually helping the community that he, well, that he was raised by, because it always takes a village to raise an individual. That's at least my thinking. So uh, it's kind of confusing why, why would you leave like a whole market instead of sharing a market with a different, uh, a different team, a different franchise as the Knicks who are as historically, rooted in the the New York area that even though they are, even when they are bad, they still are able to make money and be popular because they're the Knicks, right? And what I think about that is that, well, I wouldn't say it was a mistake because from a fan's perspective, you might hate that move, but ultimately when I mean, when the Brooklyn Nets were during their first years in, in Brooklyn, when they actually weren't all that good, I've noticed in Warsaw, where, where I lived around the time, way more kids wearing like Brooklyn stuff, Brooklyn Nets stuff, than, 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 than I noticed during my whole lifetime, people wearing New Jersey Nets stuff. And I was one of the few who was wearing... New Jersey Nets, like Jersey, I have my silver Jason Kidd jersey still somewhere in, in my parents' house. So from marketing perspective, it made a lot of sense. And ultimately, the move made a lot of money. So I, I mean, to put things bluntly, it was all about the money. The, mar- the New York market is just way bigger, even when we're talking, well, even in comparison to like the whole state of New Jersey, like the whole city of New York. Was able to to be a more promising landing destination than than just staying in New Jersey.
1: Two two things there. Number one, um, it's it's a a, a a a rejection, I guess, of the suburb kind of mentality, right? Which New Jersey largely suburban, is is well, yeah. spread out, and <laughs> and a, and a retro, I guess, to. Uh, the urban core or the city in this case, you know, uh, if if Brooklyn was separated out from New York and the other boroughs, it would probably be the fifth or sixth or seventh largest city in the United States, apparently, or at least it was back when they when they first moved there. It's still by itself. It's a, it could be a large uh, 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 city in its own right. Um, uh, and but I think the other sort of part of that is. And yeah, th- there's also a heritage there. Right. Brooklyn has a heritage as it's, I mean, the Brooklyn Dodgers baseball team still has that that era of that era of legacy, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and is distinctive, right? You're from New York? No, I'm from Brooklyn, right? That, that's yeah. probably the most uh, 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 unique and stand out of the five boroughs, right? When it comes to, to to that kind of identification. But the other thing is yeah. real estate. The other thing is real estate, right? So, mm-hmm. frankly, now you see that the model right now for business and sports, right, tends to be, well, there's a bunch of things, but in particular is real estate, owning your own stadium, building and owning your own stadium, and then all the stuff that's around that, that either is or isn't related necessarily to game day, right? So during the off season, is there enough stuff to keep you interested, uh, either to visit or perhaps like the Atlanta Braves baseball franchise, right? Build an office park around it. Um mm-hmm. So it's been plus now betting being sort of legal, mostly in in lots of different places in the United States. Revenue streams, of course, it's money. But the money part is actually the real estate. And if you think about it, the guy who bought the franchise, the guy who built the stadium there in Brooklyn, right, it was all real estate and all this and and rehabbing, if you will, or gentrifying, depending on your perspective, an area of Brooklyn. Right. And and all the stuff around it, Um, that's sexier, I think, than. Let's drive 15 miles to a stadium in, in in some parking lot in New Jersey, and then you know, is that New yeah, Jersey problem the, or issue? Don't yeah, know. Yeah, and
2: then placing the stadium next to the turnpike also, which was sort of promising initially, then turned out to be like a problem, right? Because I mean, people were stuck in traffic, so there there is no tailgating in in basketball, so so people weren't actually looking forward to. To, to just being stuck in traffic and then just spending time around the arena as opposed to the New York Giants games back then. So, yeah.
1: Well, let, let me end where stable. we kind of let, let me end where we kind of started. Um, I, so it's very telling that you just said that you personally started to lose interest in, in the team. After they made their 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 break to Brooklyn, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because yeah. you you identified with them as New Jersey, and I can sort of do the same too. A final goodbye
0: from the Garden State. The next thirty-five year run in New Jersey has come to an end. A new home in Brooklyn, but lots of memories in the rearview mirror. Sixers won it 105 to 87 over the New Jersey Nets. (laughs) At halftime, they celebrated this franchise's history. New Jersey Jersey Nets basketball will be remembered but it'll be the brooklyn nets from now on one more game officially as the new jersey nets no more games here
3: in the state of new jersey
1: nets will make the move to the Barclays center starting next season i want to see at least some glimmers of remembrance about what came before the brooklyn version having grown up and experienced that New Jersey uh, part of their history, but only until recently uh, has there been a bone or two thrown to the New Jersey and even a fleeting memory of the New Jersey version. Um, I guess the question I have in there is maybe this is my question too. Why is it so hard for me to root for the Nets now?
2: So I don't know how it's for you, but for me, it has all to do with like the way sports, well, not not only professional, but organized sports in general, how it's presented to people and how it's profit reliant maybe because when we think about Brooklyn Nets, I think about marketing, right? And they were marketed as if Jay-Z was the franchise owner and he was, marketed as a man who created the logo of the brooklyn nets even though it turned out that that some people were paid like twenty thousand dollars to pretend that he was the one responsible for that so so you have this sort of well the need to well identity is established over time. You can just buy identity. And I think that my main problem with the Brooklyn Nets is that. I'm sorry.
1: Sounds like your friends oh. in the background have a problem with the Brooklyn Nets too.
2: <laughs> yeah, they have a problem with the cat because I have like seven dogs and two cats, and they mostly no. get along, but just. Blind. So the problem with the Brooklyn Nets is, well, I think, so the reason for the reason what made the New Jersey Nets so great for me was that even though it wasn't like a preferred identity, it was an identity. They stood for something. When you watched the New Jersey Nets play, even though you were like hoping for the good, but preparing for the bad, you knew that it would be about something. It would make you feel things. If I may return to the analogy on to wrestling that I have presented earlier when we talk. So it made you feel a certain way. Whereas the the way the team was marketed like the like when you think about Brooklyn, you think about being rugged, being tough, right? You can't buy that. It's built over time. So when you teleport is probably the best way to, to put it, you teleport a team, you can't give it a new identity. It already has an identity. It already has a history and you need to build that history through time you can't buy that. And I just think that the Brooklyn Nets were trying to buy this new edgy identity. And it just didn't work for me. I don't know how it how it was for you.
1: No, I, I feel the same. And again, I'm biased, right? Because I grew up literally during mm-hmm. this time when they became a new NBA franchise and were literally making New Jersey their their identity, right? And mm-hmm. and they were received pretty quickly as such. Um, And, you know, it is um, I guess it's hard. I I think I can identify with the Hartford Whalers uh, fans, too. Very hard to Mm -hmm. sort of just rip up and start anew. And even that's probably even more more of uh, an adjustment because they went to a new city altogether and completely whitewashed. At least the Nets name uh, was retained. I don't know. It's um, Mm -hmm. I I don't know if there's an answer to the question. Um, I, I think certain franchises, though, do more elegantly move from one location to another and do uh, look back on their heritage heritage and do uh, sort of uh, remember sort of the roots and stuff. But, you know, I, I think that's also a sign of the times. To your point, money uh, is kind of everything. It's always been a business. And yeah, I don't know how many people know that the Atlanta Braves started out way back when in Philadelphia and have been in a mm-hmm. couple of different markets uh, between. Um, But you know, maybe that matters to people. It matters to people like me, and maybe that's just because I have an historical bent and always am curious about where things started and where, how they got this way.
2: But you know, and I I'm can see same. where there's... I'm the same way, so I can relate. Right, and but we also but, could, yeah.
1: we also could be two old men yelling at the clouds too, right? I mean. <laughs> Yeah. I, I also <laughs> I, I don't get me wrong. I don't want to uh, cast any aspersion against any current fan of a current team, even if the team only exists for the last couple of years, right? Because they, um, and, and the good news and the bad news is, at least for podcasts like this, they're always making more. There's always reasons to move and threaten to move and 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 go to a new place and all that kind of stuff, and lots of stories that come along with it. But um, no, I, I this is a team to me that. I don't know. Still has a ways to go to authenticate its Brooklyn-ness because they're yeah, always my well, mind. Even will, yeah,
2: even if it will win a championship, I mean, where where are they going to hold the parade? Are they going to go the same route as I don't know the Knicks? Definitely not. So that's like kind of complicated. And when you think about the Clippers, if I just may digress, it's it's like the same way they're trying to build like the man who owns the Clippers, I forgot his name. Oh my God. Steve Steve Ballmer. Ballmer. Yeah. Yeah. Steve Ballmer. Yeah, He thinks that when they win a championship, they will have an identity, right? They will establish an identity, but they already have an identity. They're the Clippers. I mean, when things are, and and sort of, we, we saw that in the playoffs, right? That when things are supposed to go bad, they will go bad anyway for you because you're the Clippers. And you will, even if you win one championship, it will be like the exception to the rule. So you need time to establish an identity. And winning, when we talked about the New Jersey Devils, winning solves that problem, but as you've said, a lot of different uh, things factor into building an identity.
1: Yeah, look, I I think even if the Brooklyn Nets are ultimately successful in winning an NBA championship, I I honestly believe that's that's a, a, the perhaps most opportune time to remember where they came from, because the last time they ever mm-hmm. won a championship in anything were their two years in. Well, the, the the New York Nets. Right. I mean, before they came to New Jersey, they were the New York Nets and they they won the last two uh, NBA uh, ABA mm-hmm. championships. Right. That's so true. you can't ignore that. It's not just the New Jersey part of the story. It's the ABA part of the story. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's almost like double uh, the need to kind of thread through, especially since that's the last time they ever won a championship. But, you know, m- maybe that's what it takes. Um, but look, I-, I also admire people like you and and people that we've talked to over the years uh, to keep sort of these histories alive because these things did happen. Right. This the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the time that th- this team spent in New Jersey and-, and maybe it's not the most important thing in the world. OK, but for me, it kind of is important because it's part of history and you hate to see that whitewashed or forgotten because it existed. And for, for me, at least and for, and for you, for different different reasons, th- there was a, an identity there, an identification with it. It was it was real to you. I went to games, you watched them um, and you hate to see those things go away because they existed. And why not remember those things that existed? Because. God forbid that you know years down the road people forget that they
2: existed in this kind of way. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. It was just just perfect what you said. It it captures my my feelings perfectly.
1: All right, our long overdue. Focus on the great, the gutty, the gritty New Jersey version of the Nets. Cannot forget. I will squint hard always to be a fan of the Brooklyn version of the Nets uh, as much as possible, especially when they do the throwbacks to the uh, New Jersey jerseys uh, or uh, a broadcast uh, featuring uh, John Sterling like they did last season, calling the game like the good old days. Um, But uh, the New Jersey version will always have a very special place uh, in my heart. And I thank Lukasz for uh, bringing us down that memory lane. And again, the book that you can enjoy uh, similar memories uh, from is called Turnpike Team, A History of the New Jersey Nets. 1977 to 2012. It is published by our friends at McFarland. And it is available where good books are found everywhere. And we appreciate, of course, if you went to our website at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com, searching up this episode number 289. And in that episode description, you will find convenient links, plural, to this book. Uh, And you will get, of course, via Amazon uh, in the fastest humanly uh, uh, available uh, manner, Kindle version, the paperback version, whatever, and uh, we'll get a couple of nickels or dimes of referral love. And we appreciate that. That helps support the show and keep our lights on. Uh, and that's awesome, don't you think? Uh, and uh, let's also keep uh, an ear out for uh, Lukash's, uh, uh upcoming book, apparently later this year. So a perfect example or a perfect reason to come back. Around the Vancouver version of the Grizzlies, the Vancouver Grizzlies story. Uh, so this is a a, a person and a, and various topics after our own hearts here, uh, and we look forward to having uh, Lukash back uh, to talk about that when that book is out. Uh, you can follow him uh, on Facebook. Uh, you can read his reviews in the uh, Sports in American History website. Uh, he does uh, reviews of of uh, sports uh, nonfiction books, and uh, we look forward to having uh, Lukash back uh, for the uh, Grizzly story when that is. Uh, Out and about later this year, hopefully with any luck, with any luck, you will also uh, continue to follow our doings. Uh, The best way, of course, is to uh, bookmark our website at com. Of course, every stinking episode we've ever done is there and will be there. Uh, convenient for uh, grabbing and and streaming and and sending to people. If you want to give them a a place to kind of just test out the wares before subscribing or following us. And you should be doing that too, subscribing or following us wherever you get podcasts. We're available wherever those are found. Uh, And of course you can follow us on uh, social media as well. We're on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. We are on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And we are on Twitter at Good Seats Still. And uh, our uh, email address, by all means, please, we're at hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Our thanks to Jerry Payne of Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Happy New Year to you, sir, belatedly. And uh, thank you, of course, for listening and uh, and dealing with our head cold and, and slightly scratchy voice this, uh, this week. Uh, perhaps uh, my uh, opportunity to... Try out for some DJ roles uh, after I uh, sign off here. Until next week, thank you for listening. More fun and frivolity coming your way next week. God willing, take care and uh, we'll see you.